Well, good morning. Hey, glad you're with us. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we are going to begin this morning, uh, to the end, towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 40 and 41 is where at least we will begin. Uh, we will also find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we will also find ourselves in the Gospel of John. So if you want to mark those three Gospels, that's where we are going to be this morning. We've been in the midst of a sermon series called The Twelve, and we've been examining the life and personalities, faults, failures, and how God miraculously used uh, 12 ordinary men to literally change the world and to, ro- to turn the Roman upside, uh, Empire upside down with the good news of Jesus. And so we've been examining uh, uh, the life of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And uh, this morning we come to what will be almost our final three. Almost our final three, because we will save uh, Judas Iscariot for Good Friday. So I trust that you're there in Mark chapter 15. Uh, If you're not, the text should be up on the screen, at least most of them. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in with uh, these three disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we can come and lift our voices to you. It's an incredible privilege and honor for us to come together as the body of Christ, to be with other people who have been born again, born of the Spirit, whose hearts have been made new, who have been made new creations and have been regenerated to be the people that you want us to be, whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ through their personal, through our personal faith and trust, receiving this good news of the gospel of Jesus' perfect life in our place, his death bearing the wrath of God in our place for our sins, and his glorious resurrection as he defeated death by death, and as he was given new life, And he also gives us new and eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you for these men that you have chosen. Thank you for their lives as we have had the great privilege of examining them over the past uh, five or six weeks. Thank you for what you've shown us of them because in them we see us. In their faults, we see our faults. In their strengths, we see our strengths. In their personalities, we see our own personalities. And we see how you take ordinary men and you do extraordinary things in the world because you indeed are an extraordinary God. And you shape them and you use them and you mold them just like you do us so that as they were sent out into the world to make disciples of all the nations, so we too are sent out into our world, wherever it may be, to make disciples and followers of Christ. Thank you for that privilege. We pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would guide us, that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to your word, and that we might learn to become the sent out ones that you have called us to be. And it's in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name of our God and Savior, our Lord and our King, the name of Jesus. And at that name, all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before. Uh, You're watching a particular movie, whether it be on the big screen or maybe in the comforts of your home. And you're watching a movie and you're enjoying the movie. But there's one particular actor or maybe actress that you notice. You kind of know who they are. You're familiar with them to some degree, but you just don't. You don't remember their name, right? You're not exactly sure who that is. And so you wait until the movie is over for what? 
for the credits, right? For the ending credits to roll. And when the movie is done, the, the credits begin to roll. And you look intently because you want to know who this particular actor is or who this, that particular actress is. And you want to know the names. Well, if you've, you've been there and you've done that and you've ever spent some time just paying any attention at all to the credits of a movie as, as they scroll, you'll notice this unmistakable fact that at the beginning, right, at the very beginning of the credits, come whom? The, the, the main actors, right? Those who had the, the biggest parts in the play. Those who were the biggest part of the story. Their names come first, right? And oftentimes, although not exclusively, oftentimes their names are in, in a little bigger font, right? So you can see them. You can, you can see their names clearly. Uh, you can see who it is that you're looking for and what part that they played. And not only are their names maybe in a little bigger font, but the credits scroll a little slower, right? They're, they're, it's pretty slow so that you can take your time, you can kind of see who the actors are, and you can see what part they played. But you've probably noticed, like me, that once, once the credits get through some of the major players, some of the, the big actors, what happens? Well, most of the time what happens is that the font gets increasingly smaller, does it not? The font gets increasingly smaller, and the pace gets increasingly what? quicker, right? And so it's, it's more difficult to see the, the names of the guys or the gals who had less of a role, less prominent of a place in the movie. And you kind of have to get closer to the screen and squint maybe a little bit because the font is smaller and you maybe have to, have to pause it because the pace is so brisk, right? If you want to find out who some of these minor characters are. Well, I think that uh, our, our time together looking at the 12 disciples. The twelve apostles have sort of been like that because we've seen some of the the big players in the gospel narratives, right? We've seen Peter. We've seen John. We've seen his brother James, right? And and the gospel story kind of acts like a, a scroll. Their names are in pretty big font. They show up quite a bit. And the, the pace is pretty slow. You can, you can take your time because there's more material with some of these major players. But as we have made our way down, you can see the chart here, as we have made our way down the, the list of the disciples, what has happened? What has occurred? You, you've noticed, if you've been with us for several weeks, the, the font of the names of these guys well, they're kind of getting smaller, right? And the pace at which we see them is, is getting quicker. That is, we don't see nearly as much about Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and the three names that we're going to cover this morning, James, Simon, and Judas. However, each of them, each of these three men, They had a part to play. They had a part to play in the movie, so to speak. That was the gospel story. They had a part to play in Christ's sending them out. They too were apostles. They too were appointed by Christ himself to go unto all the nations and to make disciples. Maybe their role was not as prominent. Maybe their names were not as large or often mentioned. Maybe they don't get the publicity in the gospel narratives that some of the names on the upper end of the list do. However, they had a part. Just like the, the, the people on the credits of the movie that, that it scrolls real fast and it's real small, they had a part to play too, right? They had a part to play too. And so this morning, let's take a look at three of these guys, right? Simon, James, James, 
and Judas, who are in smaller font, and the scroll seems to be moving more quickly. Let's begin with a man by the name of James. Let's begin with James. Now, you may be thinking, well, we've already covered James, Trey. We've already covered a man named James, and, and you're right. There are two James in the list of the twelve, and this James gets much less publicity, right? His name doesn't show up nearly as much. He is the overshadowed, the overlooked James in comparison to the James that we are familiar with. I'd like to share with you a a brief conversation that my wife and I had, oh, I think it was this week, if not early next, uh, late last week. Uh, She was on Facebook, I believe, or maybe she got an email from an old friend of hers who uh, lives in Tulsa. And uh, this friend of hers has a very fruitful ministry to international students. Very fruitful ministry. Am I on? Can you hear me? Okay, wonderful. A very fruitful ministry to international students. And Shelly gets updates uh, from her so often about how she's witnessing to this person and witnessing to that person and how uh, a, a young woman or maybe a young, a young man, I don't remember, from the, from the nation of, of Iran placed her or his faith in Jesus Christ and is afraid to go home because of the implications of what it means to be a Christian in her culture. And, and Shelley kind of made an offhanded comment like, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm not being as effective in ministry as I should. Uh, I, I wonder if, in, in light of this young lady, if, if I should be doing more. She felt overshadowed by this particular woman. And I think in my infinite wisdom, that's a joke, I think all I can muster up is say, well, honey, your ministry is different. And that was about all that was said. So I wasn't a very good pastor to her at that point in time. But as I've thought about it and as I reflected, we had a a second conversation. And what I should have said or, or could have said or wanted to say was, you know, you have a very different ministry than her. And that's true. You have a different ministry than she does. And you may not be seeing the same kind of results that she sees, and yet you still have an effective ministry. You're, you're ministering to your three young kids, and you're ministering to me. You're, you're taking care of, of our kids so that I can be gone uh, during the evenings and that I can do things for the church. And, and you're serving me and, and the church at large, not to mention the fact that she works for a, a seminary so that she keeps the books and makes sure, the, with, with her small part, that Dallas Theological Seminary can train hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women and send them out to preach the gospel. And I said, you, you may not have the same results. You may feel overshadowed by this other friend of yours, but, but you too, I think, have an effective ministry. It may be different. Now, certainly that doesn't get her off the hook. Certainly she and all of us need to evaluate, you know, are we being faithful? Are we being faithful to what God has called us to? That's certainly a pertinent question. But it's also a question of, are we being faithful where God has placed us? And in the role that God has placed us in, I wonder if James, this James that we're talking about, I wonder if he often struggled and had some of the thoughts that, that Shelley had this past week. I wonder he, if he often felt like he lived in the shadow of James the Greater, if, if his ministry, if his role that Christ has a, had appointed him, if he was doing his part, maybe he felt that way. Uh, we don't know much. We don't much of... Uh, much about this man. What we find out is that uh, when he is listed in the four list of the disciples, he is called, uh, he's called this, he's called James, 
the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus. And uh, really, that's mostly all we know about him as a person. We know his name, very common Jewish name, and we know the name of his father. What we know is that he's overshadowed by at least two other James in the New Testament. Of course, the first one is the one we've been talking about, right? James, the brother of John. James, uh, he's he's one of the big three, right? The innermost circle, right? He's one of the the sons of thunder, right? He's certainly overshadowed in the group by the man who bears his name. But he's also, I think, overshadowed in the New Testament by another James, another James, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? We know that Jesus had a half-brother, and his name was James. We know that he became a very strong leader in the early church. We, we see him showing up in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, and he has essentially the definitive word on this great kind of early debate in the church history. We know that he, of course, wrote one of the, the books of the New Testament. So when you read through your New Testament, you come across the, the little letter of James, That's Jesus' half-brother. There are at least two James in the New Testament that overshadow James, the son of Alphaeus. Interestingly enough, turn with me in your Bible. In Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 41, he's called something else. He's not called James, the son of Alphaeus, but he's called James the Less. James the Less. What is that? What does that imply? Well, if you do a little study, you find out that that Greek word could essentially mean three things. First of all, it can mean that he was small in stature. So he could have been just a little guy, right? He could have been short and kind of weak. They could have called him James the Less because he was just a scrawny little dude. That, that could be true. Uh, it, it could be that he was particularly young. He could have been just really young. And, and they would have called him James the Less. Those two things may be true. But my, my guess, my money is on the third option, which means that he has less status. He had less influence than the other James. I think it was a designation. There's James, James and John. James, right, the son of thunder. There's, there's James. And then there's James, right? There's James the Greater. And there's James the less. I think that is what is meant in this designation. He is James the less. You could say what distinguished him was that nothing distinguished him at all. That was his distinguishing mark. That there was no distinguishing mark. In fact, interestingly enough, when you read through the rest of the Gospels, his mom and his brother get more publicity, get more space in the Gospels than he does. He's one of the twelve, but his mom and his brother get more play. What we find out is that his mother's name is Mary. We're going to see this in our verse in just a minute. His mother's name was Mary, and she appears several times throughout the Gospel accounts. Several times, because what we find out is that she was among the group of women who were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. So his mom was there when Jesus was hanging on the cross. She was there. He was a disciple, but she was there, right? She was there at his burial. She was there. She was there at his resurrection. His mom had the privilege of seeing the risen Christ first 
But he was the called. He was the disciple. Interestingly enough, we find out he has a brother. And the brother's name is Joseph. His name is Joseph. In some verses, he's paired with, like in this verse, his brother. It's James and Joseph. They're brothers, right? And they are the sons of Mary. But in other scriptures, interestingly, interest, interestingly enough, it's Mary whose son is, guess what? Joseph. And that's it. There's no mention of our James in several scriptures. It's fascinating to me that he was among the 12, and yet he's overshadowed not only by James, he's overshadowed by his own mom. He's overshadowed by his own brother, right? I mean, nothing distinguished him, except for he was indistinguished, right? Let's read this together. Mark 15, verses 40 and 41. Mark 15, 40 through 41. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger. Now, the NIV translates the less as the younger. James the Younger and of Joseph, or Joseph, some translations say, and Salome. Now, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, where also, uh, were also there. So there we have him. That's our guy. That's what we know. He is listed, other than the list of the 12 apostles, in context to his mother. And that's what we know of him. That's what we see of him. One commentator writes this way. We might say his distinguishing mark was his obscurity. That, that in itself is a significant fact. Apparently, he sought no recognition. He displayed no great leadership. He asked no, no critical questions. He demonstrated no unusual insight. Only his name remains. While his life and his labors are immersed in obscurity. However, eternity, and this is important, eternity will reveal the names and the testimonies of these, like James the Less, whom his world, uh, whom the world barely remembers and know nothing about. Eternity will, will reveal the names and the testimony of men and women like these. We find out even his death even his death is pretty hazy. Even his death is pretty, pretty hazy. There's, there's evidence that he took the gospel to essentially the modern-day Middle East, Iraq, Iran kind of, a, of area. There's, there's some notation that he was stoned to death, as the picture I think behind me shows. There's, there's some evidence that he was beaten to death, clubbed to death, or maybe even crucified. We just don't know. His death is as hazy as his life was his death was as hazy as his life was and that's what we know he's james the less and to me as i studied and read about james the less i was very encouraged and i hope you are too because you know what i think often most of us we kind of feel like him don't we i mean we kind of feel as christians that we're we're james the less we're, there's somebody better than us there's somebody more effective than us there's someone who has a bigger platform than us there's somebody who's more effective than us there's someone who's more holy than us and we were just we're just tray the less right we're just fill in the blank with your name the less i think we we can feel like that most of us you know we just we just go about living our our christian lives quietly faithfully 
We, we pursue God, we read our Bibles, we pray, we come to church, we do good deeds when they, when they come our way, right? We give to the church and to others in need, and we're just giving ourselves away, maybe in small things, things that are not tangible, things that we're not recognized for, right? We're, we're trade the less, we're not trade the greater, right? We just labor faithfully in the shadows, in obscurity, and nobody says anything, Maybe we get a thank you every now and then for serving in the nursery or for serving at Awana or for picking the kids up, you know. Maybe we get recognized a little bit, but, but most of the time, I think if we were honest, <coughs> we just kind of live out this obscure Christian life. And sometimes I think we ask, does it matter? Does anybody care? Does God notice? I think the story of James the Left is a testimony that God cares, that God notices, that, that these two are the kind of people that God uses to change the world. So be encouraged, friend. Maybe you feel like you are fill in the blank of the less. So was James, and yet God used him tremendously for his glory. So we've seen, we've seen apostle number one, James the less. I want to move now to our second apostle for the morning. His name is Simon. His name is Simon. And we've, we've seen another Simon, right? Who was who, who the first Simon that we saw? Simon, the man Jesus nicknamed what? Peter, right? So the rock. This is not him. <laughs> There's another one. Not only are there two James, but there are two Simons. And uh, this Simon, he's, he's very different than Peter. Not only does he get less publicity, but his background, oh, is so very different. Let me ask you a quick question. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you think, do you think that if Jesus were here in the 21st century, I've asked this question before, and he was choosing 12 men, if if he was doing what he did then now, do you think that it would be possible for him to choose a terrorist? Do you think that Jesus would choose a terrorist, somebody engaging in those kind of activities. Do you think he'd choose someone like Osama bin Laden? Someone maybe like the, the brothers involved in the Boston bombings? Someone like the, the leader of Al-Qaeda, Al-Zawahiri? Do you think that Jesus would choose somebody involved in that kind of, that kind of activity? Interestingly enough, as we come to our our second disciple of the day, we find a man whose name is Simon, and about the only thing we know of him is what he is listed as in the list of the twelve. So let's read now. Turn with me to, ch- to Luke. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 15. We're going to read one quick verse. Luke 6, chapter, uh, verse 15. We find ourselves in the list. And just notice, this is what we know about Simon. This is all we know about Simon. Starting in verse 15, it's listing the 12 when we pick up in verse 15. Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, there's our our guy before, and Simon, who was called the what, church? The zealot. Simon, who is called the zealot. That's all we know about him. Okay? There's no stories. There's no dialogue. He doesn't say anything. In the gospel, that's all we know is this designation 
and that he was known as the Zealot. Now, you may, uh, if you don't know anything about maybe Old Testament and New Testament uh, history, you may be thinking, oh, great, he's zealous. He's passionate for the Lord. And, and he was. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing, right? But it's not just merely talking about uh, his zeal. He's, he's talking about a political party. So let me quickly go through. Uh, essentially, in the, in the New Testament times, when Jesus was around, there were in uh, the, the land of Israel, among the Jewish people, four political parties. I'll just keep it simple. Four political parties, right? And the first one were known as the Pharisees. We're all familiar with them because they, are, they show up throughout the Gospels, right? They're the antagonists, along with others, of Jesus. We know about the Pharisees. Essentially, they were on the right, that is, politically, they were on the right, right? They were religiously fundamentalists. They strictly adhered to the Old Testament law, and then some, right? They added to it. So they were on the right, so to speak. Uh, they were on the right, so to speak, politically. And then there was a group called the Sadducees. You may be familiar with them. They show up in the, in the Gospels, although not as much. They were essentially religiously on the left. They were the liberals, okay? If the, the Pharisees were the conservatives, then the Sadducees were the religious liberals. They were rich. Generally, they, they came from a wealthy, aristocratic, powerful class. And they had charge over the temple there in Jerusalem. So you have those on the right. You have those on the left. There's a third group. And the third group is called the Essenes. Now, they don't show up in the New Testament, so you probably don't know about them. Essentially, they were aesthetics. They were celibates. That is, they separated themselves off from society. They went out and formed a little group in the desert, and uh, they were intent on studying the law and waiting for the Messiah. Uh, you see some ruins, hopefully, uh, there behind them uh, of where they were. There we go. Some ruins of this little desert community that they lived in. Uh, interestingly enough, some people think that John the Baptist was from this political party. I don't necessarily, but it's interesting to note. So, those are three political parties. What about our fourth? Finally, we come to the zealots. Now, Simon was a zealot. What do we know about the zealots? Quite a bit. What we know, I'll keep it short, what we know is that they were revolutionaries, okay? Okay. They were revolutionaries. They sought to overthrow the Roman government, which essentially occupied the land of Israel and, and, and the people of God, right? They, they wanted to revolt and to overthrow the, the Roman government. And the, the tactics that they used were terrorism and violence. Terrorism and violence. Let me read just real quickly what, what one commentator says. He says they were militant, violent outlaws. They believed only God himself had the right to rule over the Jews. Therefore, they believed they were doing God's work by assassinating Roman soldiers, political leaders, and really anybody else who opposed them. They were bad dudes. They were hoping for a Messiah who would lead them in overthrowing the Romans. That's what they wanted. They were red-hot patriots ready to die in an instant for what they believed in. History tells us that they were ready to die themselves and they thought very little of the death of their wife and their kids for the sake of the cause. In an instant, they were willing to sacrifice everything. They were known as Sicarii or, or dagger men. They were known as dagger men because they carried deadly, curved-like daggers that they carried in the folds of their robes. 
So imagine the, the daily garb of the robe, and they held these deadly weapons underneath, essentially. Uh, they would sneak up behind Roman soldiers or, or maybe Roman politicians, anyone who, who got in their way, and would stab them in the back, between the ribs, expertly piercing the heart. So, this was Simon. This was Simon. Undoubtedly, I think it's safe to assume that when Christ called him to, to follow me, I, I think it's safe to assume that he had hopes that Jesus would be the Messiah, like many others, who would overthrow Rome. Certainly, that was his anticipation. That was his agenda that I believe, at least initially, he came and brought with him when he followed Christ. But what we see is that Jesus essentially won him over. He caused Simon to believe in a greater kingdom and in a greater king. He transferred, I think, all of his zeal, his passion, his conviction, his loyalty, his courage, and his willingness to die for a political cause to the cause of Christ. Tradition tells us that after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Simon took the gospel north. And tradition tells us that he took the gospel north to the British Isles. So he was uh, a lover of the Brits, I suppose. And he was martyred. He was martyred there for doing so. We don't know how, but he certainly died. This man who was once willing to kill for an earthly kingdom himself was killed for a heavenly one. So I think there's a warning. I think there's an inherent warning here that is relevant to me and you from the life of Simon the Zealot. And and it's this. I think we need to beware of coming to Jesus with our own agenda. I think we need to beware of coming to Jesus with our own agenda. And I think to some degree we we all do it. We heed his call to to come follow me, and and we bring with us our own agendas, all sorts of different uh, agendas. maybe, Maybe we bring a political agenda. Maybe we bring our politics, wanting to mobilize maybe the religious right for conservative purposes to use the name of Jesus to get votes or or to fund campaigns or the like. Maybe we come with social agendas. Maybe we come to Jesus with our own social, social agenda, maybe feeding the poor, maybe fighting human trafficking, maybe providing clean water or fighting the AIDS epidemic or any other uh, humanitarian agenda out there. And those are good things. But we come to Jesus and we want to use Jesus towards that end. Maybe we come with personal agendas. Maybe we come to him with personal agendas like just wanting to get rich the prosperity gospel that is so popular in our day and age. We think Jesus is a vehicle to make us rich or to make us healthy. Maybe we come to him and we see him as a moral or a religious uh, a teacher, and so we just want to be better people. We want to be moral, right? We want to be seen in the community as somebody who is upstanding, religious. And so we come to, to Jesus with, with this agenda. What Jesus has to do in our lives, is he has to take this agenda and he has to replace it with his agenda, with his agenda of building the eternal kingdom with the gospel, the good news of Jesus that transforms sinners to the glory of God. 
So friend, let me ask you, do you have an agenda like Simon? Third, one more. There is a third disciple today that I'd like to cover, and his name is also a familiar name. His name is Judas. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, we're going to cover Judas in the Good Friday service. We are. There are two Judases. Confusing, right? Two Judases. Uh, and I call him the man, the man with three names. So I did a little research, and uh, there is a man uh, who lives in Philadelphia, according to my records, that once or did held or hold the record for the longest personal name ever. Now, his short name is Hubert Blaine Wolf the Senior. However, his full name, you just want to, could you guess how many letters are in his full name? You just can't. 746. 746 letters. Okay, let's see. Uh, There it is. This is his first and multiple middle names. I'm not going to read through that. But notice, A, B, C, D, okay, right? There's something going on there, right? Uh, He's got names for every letter of the alphabet. Okay, that's cool. That's his first name and his middle names. And then this is his last name, not lying. There it is. I'm not even going to try. Wolf, and it goes on. Senior, (laughs) right? Okay, that's his last name. Wow. If you didn't know that this morning, you know it now. So, let's move on from that. Now, Judas, okay, Judas doesn't have nearly this long of a name, but he's got three names. That's why the the list of the disciples can be confusing. He's got three uh, names that he, he, he goes by. So, Luke and Acts calls him Judas, the son of James. So, his name is Judas, right? But Mark calls him Thaddeus. So if you're reading through the gospel and you come across, the, come across the name Thaddeus, that's this guy. That's Judas. He's Judas, the son of James. He's Thaddeus. And then he's also, in some versions of the gospel of Matthew, some translations include this inscription, Lebius. Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Okay, so three names, right? Judas, Thaddeus, and Lebius. He only shows up and speaks once in the gospel, and we'll read that shortly. But it's interesting what his nicknames mean. We've learned a lot from the disciples' nicknames. So the name Thaddeus literally means breast child. Breast child. The image of a, of a, of a child breastfeeding on his mother. Essentially, it probably was slang for mama's boy. You ever called anybody, hey, you're a mama's boy? You ever been called, hey, mama's boy? That's, that's probably what this means. That's probably the meaning of Thaddeus, okay? Now, what about Lebius? Lebius, it means heart child. Very similar to breast child, heart child. So putting this, putting this together, what was this guy most likely like? He was probably tender, innocent, gullible, trusting, simple, with a childlike faith, compassionate, sweet, gentle-spirited, the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry, right? Right? That's, that's this guy. You, you want her to marry a guy with three names, if he's like this, right? Um, that's who I think he was. And I think that shows up in John chapter 14. So let's read that quickly together. John chapter 14, the one time when Judas Thaddeus Lebius speaks. John chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Again, the context is the upper room discourse. Jesus is 
speaking about his leaving and how he has to leave them and he's trying to comfort them. John 14, 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and I will show myself or maybe reveal myself to him. So Judas, now notice it says, not Iscariot. Okay, so Judas, our Judas, he responds to this, and particularly this last line, when Jesus says, hey, listen, if you love me, then you're going to be loved by me, and you're going to be loved by my Father, and I am going to reveal myself to you. And he picks up on this, and he says this, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Why are you going to show yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me does not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. We went one over, but that's fine. So here's what I think Jesus' response meant. I think Judas, tenderhearted, right? He's compassionate. He cares about people. He hears Jesus saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you, but not to the world. And I think he's saying, in his very considerate and compassionate heart, Jesus, why, why, in what way? Do you not care about the world? I mean, do you not care about the other people? You're just going to reveal yourself to us? He's confused. I think we see his compassionate, tender heart coming out. And I think Jesus' response means this. One commentator says, Jesus' answer meant, and I quote, I'm not going to take over the world externally. I'm not going to take over the world externally, Judas. I'm going to take over hearts one at a time. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And if he keeps my word, my father and I will come to him and together we will set up the kingdom in his heart. And so I think we see this mama's boy being very compassionate, very considerate. And I wonder... I wonder if we care about people like he did. I wonder if we would ask that kind of question. Jesus, don't you? It's, I'm really glad you love me and you're going you're gonna to reveal yourself to me. But what about others? What about others? I think that's a very commendable and very challenging thing. And we have to ask ourselves, maybe we don't want to be a mama's boy in some ways. But being a mama's boy in some ways is very good because you care about people. Well, friends, the credits are scrolling. The credits are scrolling on the narrative known as the 12. The credits are scrolling, and certainly here we have been in the disciples that are in small font and are moving briskly with James and Simon and Judas. However, something odd is going to happen in the gospel credits. Because typically it just goes on and on and faster and faster until the very end and then it's done. But what happens, uh, what happens in the list? We don't have to show it, but what happens in the list of the 12? Big font, very slow. Smaller and smaller and smaller and quicker and quicker and less information until we get to whom? Judas Iscariot. Until we get to Judas Iscariot. He's last on the list. And you expect the pattern to continue, but it doesn't. His name is in bold font, 
even though he's, he's at the end of the credits. And it slows down. The pace slows down. And we get more information about Judas because, well, we all know why. So, that's what we're going to do in about six days from now. Come our Good Friday service. Things slow down. Judas Iscariot becomes bold in font and big in view. The traitor, the one who portrayed Jesus. We'll take a look at his life. We'll take a look at his role in the death of Jesus. And it will be a wonderful Good Friday service. We'll take communion together. Don't miss it. It's always one of the best services of the year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, the life of these men, how we can relate to them very easily oftentimes, and how we see ourselves in them. Father, may we take courage that, like um, James, those of us who labor in obscurity, may we know that in eternity, our work and our testimonies will not be in vain. The reward will be great. Father, for those of us who come to you, all of us, to some degree, with agendas, and we come to Christ with our own agendas, may Jesus replace that agenda with his own in our hearts and in our lives. And for those of us who relate to Judas, the man with three names, tender-hearted, innocent, gullible, trusting. Sometimes in the world, Judases are looked down upon, and yet you lift him up as an example of what it means to care about others. Thank you for the way that you use these men and the way that you're using us. Father, I pray for this week that our hearts and minds would be focused on the life and the death of Jesus in our place and the coming celebration that indeed the God we serve is alive, that he is not dead, that he has overcome death by death, and that he offers us eternal life both here and now through faith in him. We rejoice in what he's done for us. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said together, amen.